As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. That one piece, I think that I give that credit for really taking my, you know, my Instagram account and my online presence from, you know, it was, it was going okay to just absolutely skyrocketing it. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to Creative Elements. I hope you're having a great week wherever you are. This is an exciting episode because we're really exploring some new territory. If you've ever watched the TV show Shark Tank, you've probably heard the term licensing. Kevin O'Leary, also known as Mr. Wonderful for some reason, will always ask the entrepreneur why they don't just take their product or idea and license it to a larger company. And licensing is a pretty attractive concept. You create something, you give permission for someone else to sell that work on your behalf, and you get a check in the mail for a percentage of sales. Of course, you will only make a small percentage of the overall sale, but it sounds pretty good to spend your time making something while someone else does all the selling. Several months ago, I heard a podcast interview with Kat Coquillette, who goes by Kat Coke online. Kat's an artist, and her business, Kat Coke, is an illustration and design brand. And what struck me about Kat's interview was how she viewed her work. I very much identify as a commercial artist more than a fine artist. All the pieces I put out there, the the intention behind them is for retail sale. It's ways to monetize my creativity and my passion, which is art. I'll still do illustrations and paintings that are just for me or just for friends or the people I love. And those I'm not monetizing, but the vast bulk of what I put out there, it's a 
way to uh, build my brand and build my business. And Kat has found a lot of success. Her work has been sold in stores like Target, Madewell, Bed Bath & Beyond, and Urban Outfitters, just to name a few. And it's been featured by celebrities including Hilary Duff, Khloe Kardashian, Lucy Hale, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Lauren Conrad, and Jessica Simpson. And to top it all off, Kat has several courses on Skillshare teaching illustration, Photoshop, growing your creative business through Instagram, and more. So in this episode, we're talking about leaving the agency world where she started, selling her own prints, what to know when it comes to licensing, being a digital nomad, and how adapting has helped Kat navigate it all. This is a really fun episode. I'd love to hear what you think about it. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. Shoot me a message. Let me know you're listening. And without further ado, let's hear from Kat. You know, I, in my previous life, I worked as an arts director at an ad and design agency in Kansas City. And I loved that job. It's what I always imagined I wanted to do. It's what I went to do college for. But, you know, every day I would come home from work, get home around 6 p.m. And the last thing I wanted to do was stare at a screen. I'd been staring at a computer screen all day. So what I started doing was pulling out my watercolor sets, my paper, brushes, paints, and just painting whatever I felt like painting as a way to kind of decompress from all day being in the office working with clients. And when I was doing those, it was not at all with the intention of commercializing my paintings. It was just painting as a way to recharge. So what kind of happened organically was I began posting pictures of those paintings on Instagram for my friends and family to see. And up until that point, I only had, I don't know, a few hundred followers. But as I started showing my work on social media, I started getting more followers that I didn't know, people that were following me for my artwork, which felt a little bit weird. It wasn't something um, I'd ever really planned for. But these people began asking where they could purchase my art prints um, or buy originals. And up until that point, I never really considered monetizing my artwork like that. The way that I'd been monetizing my creativity was through graphic design and through working at this agency. But in my mind, there was always this separation between art and design. Design, I thought that was my career. That was the way that my life was supposed to go. That was my path. And art was just my fun side hobby, my passion. So all of a sudden, I had this opportunity to monetize something that I previously never considered turning into a business. And that was pretty much the catalyst for where I am right now today, which is I am a full-time commercial artist. I do art licensing primarily through surface design. I love that. So many people who went through art school or get into sort of the creative arts, they look at agency life and that is the career path that they want right away. And so for you to get that gig and be in an agency early on, and then, you know, pretty quickly thereafter, start finding other avenues to express yourself. I think that's really a powerful statement to how stressful the agency life can be. You know, you said you, you did it to decompress. I have friends, you know, right out of school, they went to large advertising agencies in Chicago and New York. And I mean, they work them to the bone. But, you know, when you're out fresh out of school, you're young, you're thirsty, you're hungry, and you, you don't mind those long hours. And a lot of those agencies put a lot of systems in place to make their employees happy. Like there's cafes within uh, the office. Sometimes there's kegs that I've heard of that uh, for certain friends that work in um, advertising. They, they want their employees to be there, to be happy, and to spend a lot of time in those offices. And to be honest, when I was just getting started, I, I did not work in an advertising agency. I worked in a design agency. And 
yeah, it was great. The culture there was wonderful. I loved um, all the people I worked with. The clients were great. And so for the first few years that I worked there, I was really, really happy and I believed in what I was doing and I was very content, but it was exhausting. You know, coming home from work after working with clients all day, you don't have as much freedom, obviously, when you work with clients as you would when you're doing your own thing. And so that was something that was starting after a few years, really beginning to wear on me. And that's why I got back into painting the way that I was painting in college. I'd kind of stopped when I started my career, but I started getting back into it as a way to find that creative outlet that I was missing when I went to work every day. And so you started painting watercolors. What types of things were you painting in the beginning? At the beginning, I was really just painting whatever I felt inspired by that day. I really enjoyed painting flowers and leaves, anything that was found in nature, bugs, different types of snakes, insects, spiders. That was, I'm not really sure where that came from. I've always loved nature. And so that was what I was doing a lot of paintings of. Also food. I got into watercolor food paintings for a while. I was kind of on a spree with that. So at the time, that inspiration just kind of came from trips that I'd taken. You know, I worked at an agency, so I only had two weeks of vacation a year, but I took full advantage of those two weeks. You know, I would go down to Costa Rica or go see the Everglades, like I go to Colorado and go hiking. And so what I would do on these trips is take a ton of photos. And then when I got back to my apartment, I would paint the things that I had photographed out in the wild when I was on these uh, little excursions. And so what that's kind of morphed into now is now I live as a digital nomad, which means I hop from city to city or country to country every few weeks or a few months. I don't have a permanent home. I spend a lot of time in Southeast Asia. I spend my summers in Europe. And now what I paint and what I create and license out are the things that I'm inspired by on my travels. So if I've been you know, hiking in the jungles of Vietnam, I'll go on a full spree of just painting orchids and ferns Um, I went to Azerbaijan for my birthday last summer and I took so many photos of all the textiles I saw in the markets. And then I kind of added my own spin on that, but I was inspired by those textiles and created a full line of patterns to be licensed out on fabrics. Something you said a couple of minutes ago that I think is pretty remarkable. You had followers on your Instagram asking if they could buy prints. What an awesome opportunity and invitation for people to come to you and say, can I buy this thing? What was your work like then? Which of these works was really starting to get people's attention that they're saying, I want to buy this and have it in my home? It's funny. It was one that I didn't even concept on my own. It it was a, a Shakespeare quote. And the quote is, though she be but little, she is fierce. And my cousin actually commissioned that for me to put in the nursery uh, for her new baby's room. And she arts directed the whole thing. She picked out the quote. She wanted pretty calligraphy. She wanted it decorated in florals. And I just listened to her art direction and created something and, you know, sent it to her. And I posted it on my Instagram to be like, oh, here's my new art print or the new original I did for my cousin. And so many people messaged me or commented that they wanted that for their homes. It resonated with a pretty wide audience. It resonated with, you know, grandmothers who wanted to give it to their daughters or, you know, women my age in their 20s who felt like it resonated with them as well. It had a very wide reach in terms of, appeal to different types of audiences. And that one piece, I think that I give that credit for really taking my, you know, my Instagram account and my online presence from, you know, it was, it was going okay to just absolutely skyrocketing it. And the, and the same thing for in terms of sales. I started offering that print um, online through a print-on-demand company called Society6. And I had it, you know, sold on all these different product types from throw pillows to coffee mugs to shower curtains, you know, whatever you could possibly want it printed on that, that company offered it. 
And you know, the, this whole time it was it was awesome and it really spurred my brand. But at the same time, I was like, man, I didn't even come up with that one. That was my cousin. Like, come, give me a break here. <laughs> <laughs> when you first started seeing those comments and those messages saying, can I buy this? What was that moment like for you? It came out of left field for me. You know, again, I had this very limiting belief about being able to monetize artwork. I, I thought, no way could I possibly do that. So when people started asking if they could buy art prints or you know, have this in their homes, it really threw me for a loop. You know, my entire life, I had in art classes and in school, and you know, my parents and teachers, I had people compliment me on my art and be like, oh, Kat, you're a great artist, that looks beautiful. But no one had ever asked to purchase anything before. And so that, it was, it was pretty strange, but you know, right away, I saw that as an as a incredible opportunity. I thought, okay, well, th- there's clearly a demand. How do I reach this audience? How do I provide this for sale for them? Like at that point, I never sold my artwork ever. It's like, do I, do I go to Kinko's? Like, how do I even do it? And so I spent a lot of time researching, do I need to set up a FedEx account to get the cheaper shipping? Like, how do I print really high quality art prints? How do I have to set up an online shop? What, what does that even look like? Is, is this the time to start using Etsy? But um, up until that point, it was all so foreign to me. I'd never used any of those tools before. And that's actually what led me to Society6. It was doing all this research. And it was really overwhelming, to be honest. Um, I was doing all this research trying to figure out how I could send my product to these customers. And that's what led me to the platform, where it's this all-in-one kind of website where you, as the artist, you upload your artwork and to the platform and you set your prices on art prints. And then that platform handles, Society6 handles the rest. They have the, the website, you know, they have the marketing for the customers, they handle production, shipping, returns, customer support, all of the things that I didn't know how to do or wasn't interested in doing. And that allowed me to focus on the one thing that I was good at, which was creating artwork that people wanted to buy. After the break, we'll talk about Kat's experience licensing her artwork online. If you know me, you know how much I believe in memberships. My membership is the core of my business and earning an income directly from your audience is one of the most sustainable ways for you to become a professional creator too. So I want to tell you about today's sponsor, Uscreen. Uscreen is a beautiful all-in-one platform that helps content creators earn a living from their videos by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. You can host private live streams for your members, build an on-demand catalog of premium content, and Uscreen gives you a community hub to interact with your members too. They can access your community from their mobile phone, so your membership is right there in their pocket. With a Uscreen account, you get video hosting, an out-of-the-box website, full payment and subscription management, and plenty of third-party integrations too. And Uscreen makes it easy to get set up. You get access to powerful website themes that are fully brandable with no coding skills required. Uscreen will even provide a dedicated success manager for you. Just about anyone that wants to make money from their content can do it with Uscreen. It's perfect for coaches, authors, influencers, and entrepreneurs in just about any niche. Right now, Uscreen is used by creators in fitness, education, news, kids entertainment, and more. That includes Yoga with Adrian and Creator Now, just to name a couple. Uscreen is the platform for building a video membership site that is great for generating a sustainable income for professional creators. If you create video content for your audience, I highly recommend checking it out. If you're interested in learning more about Uscreen, visit uscreen.link slash J. That's U-S-C-R-E-E-N dot link slash J and let them know that I sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. 
my wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash creator. Welcome back to Creative Elements. Kat Coquillette had her dream job at an agency and she was on the path to her career pursuit of becoming a creative director. But her creative outlet, painting, was starting to get attention online. So she began adapting. She was trying to find a way to actually sell her artwork as prints and came across Society6, a website that licensed artwork and sells it on a wide range of products. I got started with Society6 back in 2014. I got in at a very lucky time. They're, they were already an established website and they already had an audience and they had um, a lot of really great artwork and content creators active with the site, but there was also a big opportunity. They were still fairly new in terms of getting a lot of new artwork on the site. And because I created a new piece just about every single day, I was constantly updating my portfolio. And there, the competition in terms of other artists selling on that site, it wasn't too high at that moment because it was, you know, it was early years for that. And so I was able to make a name for myself on that site simply because there were so few artists involved relative to where they are now. Now it can be, it's, it's quite a bit more difficult. There's a lot of artists selling through that site. There's a lot of content out there. So it can be much more challenging to get noticed now than it was back in the early days. But that's not to say that there aren't other platforms out there that are, you know, just getting started or could be great opportunities. And, you know, even with Society6, their aesthetic is very much, you know, it's, it's L.A. chic, it's dorm rooms, it's things that my artwork style fit into really well. But there's other platforms out there that have a different aesthetic that they push, like Redbubble is another print-on-demand website, um, exact same business model as Society6. But the styles that they promote, it's pretty different. Uh, it's a lot of... Uh, cartoons, comics, um, things that print really well on stickers, uh, t-shirts, think like Threadless, Teespring, that kind of thing. So if you have a style that's more applicable to that kind of audience, Redbubble might be your platform of choice. So you upload your designs on Society6 so you can sell it to the people on Instagram that want this print. I imagine it took a little bit for you to say, I'm going to go all in in this and I'm going to travel the world and do this from wherever I want. You're still working at this agency. Can you talk about the transition and the timeline of at what point you began thinking this is going to be my thing? That was probably the most stressful time period of, of my entire life was deciding to quit my stable job, not even job, to quit my career. Up until that point, I thought I was going to be a designer, an art director, a creative director. That was my career trajectory. And this was me deciding to say goodbye to all of that. And this agency that I worked with that I loved so much. I loved the clients. I loved my creative directors. Everyone I worked with, it was, it was a great setup. So yeah, saying goodbye to all of that and deciding to 
pursue entrepreneurship, just go all in with this idea of being an artist that is involved in art licensing. That was, yeah, it was really stressful. But it's something that I knew I had been building up this this kind of side hustle for, I mean, I've been building it up for a year or two before I actually left my job. And I knew it was the right choice. I knew that it was time to to, to go all in on it. Like the, the, the prospects there were just, it just seemed like the ceiling, I, there was no ceiling there. I could just continue going, going, going and pushing this as far as I personally could take it. Whereas I saw my career path in the industry, it was very linear and I saw a clear ceiling there. So it seemed like I had this amazing opportunity and I, I had to do it, but it's almost like I didn't want to do it. There were so many risks involved. And, you know, what if I went all in with entrepreneurship, but then I didn't succeed? What if I couldn't make any money? What if my revenue streams began to dry up? What would I do? And it was really overwhelming. But really what it came down to was, okay, say I quit my job and I try art licensing, which let's be honest, I was already doing it for two years and my revenue was going exponentially upwards. Like it hadn't even begun to plateau at that point. So the risks financially were pretty minimal. But even if I didn't like it, I could always go back into my career path with design. Maybe not at that same agency if I quit my job, but certainly that's there's many, many agencies out there, many cities around the world. It's not like by quitting that job, I was burning that bridge entirely. I just wanted to try something new out. So really coming to terms with the fact that this isn't some massive risk that I'm taking. If anything, it's just one more calculated step in this direction that I'd already been going that helps me get through it quite a bit. And yeah, when I quit my job and I talked to my my boss, I mean, she she was sad to see me go. She understood. And we're still, you know, we still keep in contact. When I go back to Kansas City, um, I'll do happy hours with uh, my old coworkers. Every once in a while, I'll stop by the agency, say hi. So we're still on great terms. But at the time, back then, when I was actually quitting my job, it felt like the biggest decision I'd ever made in my entire life. I think what you're saying about risk is so important. I think people think about these changes as these landmark door slam, bridge burned type moments where it's like, well, if I do this, then I'm completely saying goodbye to this other thing forever. But there's actually more opportunity and more options. If this new thing you're trying doesn't go well, there are other ways forward or backward maybe in some cases, but it's not this huge burn the boats moment all the time. I absolutely resonate with that. And that's one thing that I've kind of come to realize, you know, from leaving my job and starting this, you know, solopreneur career, from that to living in, you know, different countries that I don't even speak the language in, it's rare to have a decision be completely final in life. Um, Even when I moved to Thailand, I bought a one-way ticket to Chiang Mai uh, from Kansas City, where I lived my entire life. Even then, I had friends and family, they thought I was crazy. They were like, you're moving to Thailand in a week? Like, where where did this come from? But... In my mind, it wasn't this final thing. It was, okay, I have I have this disposable income and I have time. I'm going to move to Chiang Mai. Um, there's a huge community of digital nomads there. If I love it, great, I'll continue staying there. If I hate it, I'll just come back home. Like there's, <laughs> the risks there were so minimal because it's, it's really, it's not this fi- final decision that will affect the rest of your life. There's always wiggle room. So when we left off your story here, you were you were starting to sell some of these prints on Society6, but at some point you get to licensing for larger brands like Target. Can you talk to me about that transition and that leap? So what was happening was I was uploading all of these paintings, drawings, everything on Society6 and really making my name for myself there, um, as well as growing my Instagram presence. And 
I was pretty much full speed ahead with that. And I tried reaching out to companies. Um, I signed up for a LinkedIn premium membership, which whoever does that, because I wanted to find buyers for Nordstrom and Urban Outfitters and contact the buyers, which that was a complete dead end. My outreach is just awful. But what's what I found has worked out well for me is letting other companies approach me and find me. And the way that I can do that is by setting up a strong online presence, getting a nice website off the ground with very clear contact info. My email address is everywhere and I want people to be able to contact me very easily so there's no dead ends. And so I had those systems in place. I was still doing the cold calling, trying to work with other companies with absolutely zero results. But what ended up happening was I was actually about, I was going through security. Um, I was at the airport about to hop on a flight to Tokyo. And I got an email from a buyer at Urban Outfitters who wanted to use one of my art prints to sell in their stores. And I was, I was, go, I was about to go through the metal detector. I was putting my phone away. I just saw the email on my iPhone and I was quickly reading it. And I just, I started like screaming. I was so excited. I'm sure the security officials were just absolutely <laughs> panicked, but um, I, I was so excited. And, you know, I get through security and then I got on my flight. I boarded it. The whole flight to Tokyo, I was like writing and rewriting this email back, trying to sound like super cool. Like, oh yeah, I work with big companies all the time. Here's my standard process for how this will go down. But this was my first one and it was such a huge moment for me. Like being in Urban Outfitters, that's a brand that I idolize. I've always wanted to have my designs in their store since I started this, you know, surface design career. And yeah, so I ended up um, emailing them back. We got an agreement in place. And what what that turned into was that just snowballed into everything else, all of my other in-store connections now. It's by having such high exposure for having my artwork in Urban Outfitters, so many other brands began reaching out to me about doing the exact same thing. When you got that email and you're working through this licensing agreement for the first time, how did you think through figuring out how to do that? You know, how did you think about, was I getting a good deal? What is a good deal? Do I care if I'm getting a good deal? I wasn't really sure what to ask for in an agreement back then. Um, so what I ended up doing was I knew I wanted a non-exclusive agreement because the artwork that they selected, I, that was one of my top sellers through these online platforms. And I knew that if I sold it through Urban Outfitters, I, I didn't want to have to pull it from everywhere else because it was generating a great source of income for me. So I let them know this has to be a non-exclusive agreement, which they they said was fine. That was That was the biggest step. And as far as royalty rates go, 10% is pretty much industry average through print-on-demand plat- for online platforms like print-on-demand. And I knew that because I'd been working with so many online platforms. And so when they came at me with a royalty rate, which was lower than that, I, I pushed back. I was like, well, you know, I'm actually getting a much higher, like 10% on these other platforms. What can you do for me here? And, you know, they were the ones that were like, actually in store, it's actually a little bit lower. And I, I didn't know if that was true or not. I was like, oh, is this, are they just saying that because they want a lower rate? What's what's the acceptable thing here? I don't want to be taken advantage of. But, you know, ultimately I signed the agreement and now, you know, having been in this industry for a while, what they were offering was a completely fair rate for in-store sales. But at the time it was, yeah, I guess it was kind of a leap of faith as well. It was, okay, you know, this is a brand that even if I'm getting a lower rate than I should deserve, which it turns out I wasn't, um, I'm still going to get a lot of exposure by having my brand associated with this brand. And that's exactly what it turned into. You know, the money I made from that licensing deal was was awesome. But what really changed the game for me was that exposure and having that brand association with Urban Outfitters that led to all of these other partnerships. Exposure has a really bad name in a lot of creative circles. But I think the important difference here is like, you're already getting paid for it. 
And exposure is kind of the lottery ticket bonus on top of it, right? It's not, it's not the only thing that you might get compensated with, quote unquote, from this opportunity. Absolutely. When we come back, Kat and I dive deeper into how these licensing agreements actually work right after this. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that by visiting podcastmovement.com science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back. Kat had just gotten one of her first big breaks. Urban Outfitters had asked her to use one of her prints, and now Kat had to navigate her first licensing agreement with a major brand. One of the major parts of any licensing agreement is the royalty percentage. By agreeing to let the brand use her artwork, which is Kat's intellectual property, the brand pays a percentage of sales generated from that artwork. That's the royalty. On platforms like Society6, Cat was earning around 10%. For every dollar Society6 earned, Cat was paid 10 cents. But Cat found more ways to adapt her agreements outside of just the standard royalty percentage. Now when I'm doing contracts with clients and potential partners, there's a lot of things. It's not just about the royalty rate in these contracts. There's a lot of other things that you can be asking for. When I was first getting started, I didn't know what I should be asking for and what I shouldn't be asking for. So I just erred on the side of ask for absolutely everything and then see see what they come back with. So, you know, on a lot of these initial deals, and I still do this to this day, I'll ask for one, a pretty high royalty rate. And, you know, we'll meet in the middle somewhere, but I always start out with something pretty high, which I'll never get, but you know, it doesn't hurt to try. And it gives me a better, you know, position when we start that negotiation back and forth. But yeah, but in addition to that, there's other things I ask for like exclusivity that ensures that I can continue selling this artwork through other partners. I also ask for things like social media shoutouts. If it's a big brand and they have a really big social presence, I'll have it built into the contract that they'll have to do, you know, three shoutouts tagging me in the first line of the caption on social media within the first month of our um, agreement. Or sometimes if they have a really big email list, I'll want to take advantage of that as well. So I'll be like, hey, you know, I'll take 
a percentage and a half off the royalty rate if you guys feature me in your emails and uh, link back to that product page so people can buy it and I'll get you know more sales. There's other things I can ask for as well, like exposure on the homepage. If it's a website and they get a lot of traffic, I want my work to be front and center on the homepage. So these are all these are all kind of bargaining chips and things that I can add into a contract that are going to be really beneficial to me in a way that's not just actually like a higher royalty rate. So there's there's a lot of wiggle room here and you can be creative with what you decide to add into a contract or ask for. The interesting thing when you talk about royalty rates, and we're talking about big companies here that sell a ton of volume. So when you say, you know, print-on-demand, 10% is industry average, and in this world, it's lower, people probably hear that and think, well, yeah, but 10%, is there really that much wiggle room between zero and 10%? So how do you think about that? And when you say like you're asking for a pretty high rate, what is high in a context of you know basically single-digit percents? That's a really great question. The key here with um, arts licensing, that in the way that I'm doing it, it's all about volume. So you know, one individual phone case that sells for $35, I make $3.50 from. That doesn't really make a difference at all. But when I'm selling 200 phone cases, I'm sorry, when my partners are selling 200 phone cases a day, that really adds up. And you apply that to all the different products that I have available, all the different partners I work with in online industries and in-store, everything. It's all about the volume. So when you're arguing over half a percentage, it can sound so trivial, you know, that might make the difference of five or 10 cents more on selling an art print. But when you're selling thousands of art prints, that absolutely does add up. So yeah, those royalty rates, I'll fight tooth and nail over to get to the best optimal point that I possibly can. How open are some of these companies to making it clear that this artwork was created by Cat Coke? That's another thing that I'm pretty assertive with in these contracts is I don't want my signature or my branding stripped off of any work that I license out. And for the most part, that's all the companies I've worked with have pretty much um, agreed with that and they've, they've been on my side. So if I have any art prints available in any stores, my signature will always be on the bottom right-hand corner. If I have a coffee mug for sale, um, I'll try and have my uh, brand name maybe on the bottom of the mug, you know, artist Cat Coke or Cat Cocolette if I want to go by my full name. And most companies that I work with have been pretty responsive about that. And they, uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of pushback, but it is something that you have to ask for. You know, I see phone cases that I know the artist who designed those phone cases and I don't see her signature or her branding anywhere on there. And it's really disappointing. It's like, oh man, I wish you would have asked for that or really, really pushed for it because companies will do that. Yeah, I'd love to hear from what you've gotten to know working with some of these companies now. What is most important to them? Like, where does the artist have more leverage than they think because the company actually cares about X or X and Y? What are those levers that the company cares about most? I think artists have more leverage than they think in terms of setting up these initial deals and what you ask for. Um, something that might be a, a big pain point for that comp- a big pain point for that company, like you know, maybe they really absolutely cannot push up that royalty rate any further, but there are other things that they will be amenable to that aren't going to cost them hundreds of thousands of dollars just by moving a percentage point up a, up a notch. And those are the things that can make a really big difference for us that we should absolutely be asking for. I know that exposure can be a pretty big trigger word for a lot of artists out there, but 
there are ways that you can be, as long as you are being paid, I'll, I'll never enter into a contract that I'm not getting paid something for. And yeah, the rates are low, but that also is pretty much the industry norm. But yeah, back to the other things you can ask for in those contracts, that can make a really big difference in terms of sales, direct sales. You know, if they're doing a lot of promotion of you and their email list or on their homepage, or it can also build up your online presence if their brand that has two million followers and they're tagging you in the um, in their Instagram posts. And like I've seen, I've seen my follower count grow several hundred a day just when I get those mentions. And that's been absolutely worth it because a lot of those followers turn into paying customers. Okay. I want to pause for a minute to talk about the Pareto principle. This is named after an Italian economist named Vilfredo Pareto. That's his real name. And he realized back in 1896 that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by just 20% of the population. And after a lot of studying and modeling, mathematicians noticed that the Pareto principle sort of follows what is called a power law distribution. That's the exponential growth curve that you've seen before. The number one result on Google has twice as many clicks as the number two result, three times as many clicks as the third result, and so on. So why am I talking about math? Okay, hold on, I'm getting there. The Pareto principle has become a pretty popular idea in business. There's an 80-20 for just about everything. 20% of X accounts for 80% of Y. 20% of your customers often account for 80% of your revenue. So with an artist like Kat, who licenses a ton of different pieces of art, I wanted to see if the Pareto principle applies to her business too. Absolutely. Mine is closer to 90-10. So 90% of what's in my portfolio... Um, isn't really earning me that much at all. But the top 10% of my portfolio, I mean, that, that's pulling in the majority of my income through art licensing. There's a lot of factors at play here. It's, it's creating designs that are going to be on trend, that have strong purchasing power, that companies will want to license and print on their products. So it's like I've been working on finessing this every year because obviously everything I paint or that I create digitally, any, any of my output, I want it to be earning me a lot of money. But there is still a little bit of a gamble. It's like, you know, I might paint something and think, okay, this is going to be big time. I know this is going to do really well. And then it just kind of fizzles. It doesn't go anywhere. And then other things I paint, for example, these alpacas that I painted after a trip down to Peru, I painted those because I loved alpacas in Peru. I wasn't painting them because I thought that they were going to be massively on trend, which the moment I painted them, you know, six months later, you saw alpacas over every single product everywhere in every store imaginable. So that was really the right time, right place. And so, you know, those alpacas alone, I mean, they earned me for a few years, probably like at 40% of my overall art licensing income. So that's one piece out of a portfolio of thousands. You know, again, every piece I put out there, I want it to be a big seller, a top seller, but it's a little bit of a gamble and to see what's actually going to make it and what won't. So I do a lot of trend forecasting and I'm looking at color palettes that are going to be really relevant. I look at New York Fashion Week, the Pantone color of the year, and I incorporate a lot of that research um, into the designs that I'm putting out there. I read Vogue. I listen to a lot of design podcasts. I read a lot of interior design blogs. Even though I'm not an interior designer, I still find it interesting to see the patterns that they're promoting this season. And a lot of times I can find ways that I can incorporate uh, that into what I'm actually putting out there. So, you know, if I'm seeing a really cool wallpaper that has a lot of tropical flamingos and all of a sudden you're, you're seeing those kind of motifs everywhere, I can create my own version of tropical flamingos. It's not like I'm copying the motif with every brushstroke, but I'm taking that motif idea, which is flamingos in the tropics, adding my own spin on it, and then taking advantage of this trend that's just been skyrocketing. 
some of the words you're using here, you know, entrepreneurial, risk, growth, exponential, these are words that are super familiar to me and, and people that have a little bit of a background in business or startups, probably not stuff that's often talked about in art school. Did this all come naturally to you or is this something that you started teaching yourself once you started seeing, okay, there's some sales ticking up on Society6? I never identified myself as an entrepreneur until I'd been an entrepreneur for several years. When people asked me what I did, I, I said I was an artist. Sometimes I said I was a freelancer, which didn't even really make sense because I, I didn't have clients. I was doing commercial art. I just didn't know what to call myself that people would actually understand. It wasn't until I started going to business conferences around the world that and, and meeting other people that had completely different industries than mine, but we were all growing our companies. A lot of us had these online companies that we were working on growing and building. And one of my friends referred to me as an entrepreneur in, in some context. I don't even remember what it was, but it really struck me. I was like, wait, I'm not an entrepreneur. Am I an entrepreneur? And um, there was just this, yeah, again, this limiting belief of an artist being a successful business person. There was kind of this disconnection in my mind. And I knew that I had a successful business and I knew that I was doing all of these things that it are exactly what entrepreneurs are doing, but there was just a, there was a disconnect there. So it took me it took me a while for that finally to sink in. I'm close to a lot of incredible artists and creatives, but very few of them seem to identify with being an entrepreneur or business owner, which has always struck me as strange because they are really the consummate entrepreneurs. They're creating something of unique value, which is their art, and then selling that for cash. As a commercial artist who also identifies as an entrepreneur, I asked Kat if that created any tension with other artists or creatives in her network who may not yet see themselves as entrepreneurs. Most of my friends, um, now that I hang, that are also digital nomads that I hang out with around the world, um, a lot of them are in completely different industries than mine. Uh, a lot of them are in tech or copywriting or they're strategists or coaches, programmers. It's, it's an incredibly wide range. And to be honest, I don't really have that many close connections of fellow artists. Um, in this lifestyle, I found that it's a lot of people that are working on these internet businesses that are that tend to have the same lifestyle as me. The artists that I'm close friends with are pretty well established in a certain area. So they live in Kansas City or they live in Chiang Mai, but they're not really doing as much traveling as me. I, I wish I had more, more artists in my network and more people that were in a similar industry than me. So I'm right now I, I have internet friends that are artists. It's other people that sell on Society6 or they're represented by the same agency that represents me, follow each other on social media, on Facebook, Instagram. We'll email each other with questions, but I've never met them in real life. It's so, we, you know, we kind of joke back and forth that it's like, oh, it's my internet buddy that's an artist. But, you know, they're real and they exist. It's just we don't really have that many chances to connect with each other one on one or in person. Are you still a one person operation at this point? I am. I battled back and forth with myself on whether I should be working on growing my company and doing more hiring or if I should kind of continue this solopreneur path that I've been on. And really what it comes down to is I love the freedom that my lifestyle and my work allows. I set my own hours. I really don't work with customers. I don't work with customers at all because I have these partnerships like with Target where they handle all customer support. I don't have to do any of that. I can focus on the thing that I'm, that I'm good at um, and let them do the thing that they're good at. And we have the symbiotic relationship. But yeah, I've, I've been considering that a lot over the past year, especially is 
do I want to grow my business more? And, and in order to do so, that would that would mean hiring. I hire workers off Upwork.com every once in a while. If I need a lawyer to review a contract just because I want to double check that it's going to be okay, I'll hire a lawyer to off Upwork to review that contract for me and I'll let them know the things that I'm looking for. Or if I need to do a bunch of online research into a certain category, I'll hire someone to do that as well. So these are just contractors. They're not employed by me. It's just these kind of one-off jobs. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. But if I did want to grow my business, the next step would be no longer being a solopreneur and starting to hire employees. But at the same time, I love this freedom that I have of not having to delegate or onboard anyone. It's it's all just whatever I decide my output should be, it's that. And then I have I, I have the whole day to figure out if I want to, what I want to focus on that day, what I want to work on. If I want to take two weeks off and go on a road trip in New Zealand, which is what I did in January, I can do that and I don't have to worry about employees relying on me. So Right now, it's that fine balance between freedom and exponential growth in my company, and I've chosen freedom. But that's not to say it won't change in the future. So how do you think about where you do allocate your time right now and all the different tasks that are important for you to run your business? If you could give me like a pie chart of roughly how you're spending your time on these different tasks, how would you divide that up? It's about 75 25%. 75% of my time is tasks in my business that I know are making me money and growing my business. So it's it's creating new artwork, it's filming new online classes to teach other creatives entrepreneurial skills, it's looking for new partnerships and working on my social media presence. And then it's all things that are tried and true, it's just business as usual, essentially. And then 25% of my time is spent prospecting. I'm looking for new opportunities to grow my business, new avenues that I haven't tried yet, something that is going to take a lot of effort right now, but may pay off exponentially in the future. So if I were just to continue business as usual and not make any adjustments, five years from now, there's no way that I could still be successful. This industry changes so quickly, you need to adapt with it. So that's why I dedicate you know, this chunk of time, you know, 25% of my time, that's a lot of valuable time. I could be making money right now with that time, but instead what I'm doing is I'm looking for opportunities down the road that might be really advantageous for me to get into. Last question, if I'm a graphic designer or aspiring service designer listening to this show, and I'm thinking, man, the lifestyle that Kat is describing sounds like exactly what I want. I imagine the game has changed a little bit since you got started. So if I'm aspiring to make a living on my prints or my designs, where would you recommend I invest my time? I think there's a few different ways to go about that. I think building up an online presence for yourself is really powerful, and that's a great way to get started. So assuming that you already have a portfolio of designs and patterns that you're interested in licensing out in the future, getting that out there for as many people to see as possible is a great way to get started. And that sounds obvious, but I know that can be a really big stumbling block for a lot of creatives. Putting yourself out there and showing the world your artwork can feel like it can feel like you're you're naked. I mean, it's such a vulnerable position to be in, but once you get used to it, once you start putting your artwork out there, promoting yourself, it does get a lot easier. And that's something I definitely struggled with at the beginning, especially since I never identified myself as an artist, I identified as a designer. And, you know, I felt weird posting, you know, these like pretty watercolor paintings I'd done to friends and family when in my mind, it's like, they think I'm a designer, but here I am acting like an artist. It turned, nobody cares. Nobody cares about that. It's, it's your own personal thing to get through. 
So yeah, I think step one is getting your art out there, putting yourself out there, um, promoting your stuff on social media, maybe finding print-on-demand websites to sell through. Because even though a lot of them can be oversaturated right now, the ones that have been in business for several years, they still have a great online presence. So their SEO is great. For example, if you're Googling tropical flamingo teal mug, there's a chance that mine might pop up there just because of the SEO that Society6 has in place. And that's SEO that I don't do that well on my own websites. I I know I should invest more time and do better at it. But by having these partnerships with people that do have these systems in place, it can be really beneficial for me. So yeah, getting yourself out there as much as possible is a great way to get started. Pretty cool life, right? It's hard to beat making your art, being paid while others sell it, and traveling the world. I think licensing is an incredible business model and not just for design and illustration. A lot of musicians and producers will license music for television, movies, and advertisements. And actually, Brian, the producer who mixes this show, even licenses his music for games. It's really important to remember what Kat said about her portfolio. Almost 90% of her income comes from about 10% of her work. So if you're feeling discouraged, like some people don't like some of your work, It may just be in that 90% of the work that will only contribute 10% of the value. That's okay. That doesn't mean it wasn't worth making in the first place. If you want to learn more about Cat, visit catcoke.com. That's C-A-T-C-O-Q.com. You can also find her on Instagram at catcoke. There you can see her work and check out some of the courses that she teaches on Skillshare. Thanks to Kat for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for creating the artwork for this episode. It actually incorporates one of Kat's pieces. Thank you to Brian Skeel for mixing the show and also creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. I would love that. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Conglomerate, a sonic universe.